You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy. Hi, my name's Christian from Team Clover, and I make pet supplies with purpose for a living. In 2018, Christian Marcello graduated with a degree in chemical engineering. So naturally, the first thing he did with his degree was to start a company that saves homeless pets at risk of being euthanized by designing and selling handmade pet supplies. And so, Team Plover was born. Here's my chat with Christian Marcello. Who are you and what do you make for a living? My name is Christian Marcello uh, and I am the founder of Team Plover where we make pet supplies with purpose. Our, Our vision is to create a world where every pet has a loving home and, and our products enable everyone to play a part in, in that journey. Tell me a little bit more about this. What does that mean, products with purpose? Well, it started with uh, rescue transportation. Maybe, maybe it'll make sense if, if I give you a little bit of background on, on how uh, some of this got started. So um, a, f- a few years back, I would have been in school studying chemical engineering. I was at the University of Toronto and uh, I really hated what I was, I, I wasn't passionate about it. it. It wasn't something that was very exciting to me. Uh, and I knew that at least like what I was doing in school wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. But I was hopeful that um, perhaps working in the field might be more exciting than studying the actual theory behind chemical engineering. And so I, I continued to go through the years until um, basically third year when at, at U of T there's this program called PEY, it's professional experience year. Uh, and we take, uh, you, you have the option to take 16 months and work in the field and then return for your fourth year. And I, I really wanted to do that because the past three years were, were terrible and I just wanted a chance to jump into the field. And I was excited about that. And I was also uh, hopeful and optimistic that maybe it'll be better than school. Um, but it wasn't, at least not for me. I, 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 I hated it, I think, more than school. And so, um, yeah, like I, I figured fairly quickly on in the internship that uh, this, this wasn't it. Like I, I would not be happy doing this for the rest of my life. And so I, I continued to work through the internship. But then uh, at 14 months with two months left in the internship, I decided I was going to just quit. Um, and, and I quit and I, I took some time and I started thinking about what I'd want to do um, and started, I, I started thinking about what it would be like to kind of consciously design uh, a beautiful life for myself. And I think what that involved at the time was I, I was really, in, I, I was familiar with social enterprises. Um, for example, Tom's, uh, their one for one model, giving back uh, shoes for every product sold. And, and I had, at the time I was reading a book started or created by the founder, I believe it was called Start Something That Matters by, by Blake Mikowski. Um, and so I, I, I thought like a beautiful life for myself would involve uh, doing something I'm passionate about that's making the world a better place and allows me to provide for one day myself and my family. And so I, I thought a, a social enterprise would encapsulate all of that, but I didn't really have um, any ideas at that particular point in time. It was just something that I was reading and learning more about and, and was interested uh, in. And then in September, I started my fourth year of school uh, and I joined this cohort of social innovators at the university and started a project around uh, shelter euthanasia. And the purpose of the project was to try to come up with some sort of solution that would help um, shelter pets that were facing the risk of, of being 
euthanize. And so I, it was an eight-month program for the, the entire uh, school year. And um, by the end of it, I didn't have any solution at all, but I had a really strong understanding of what the current climate looked like in terms of shelter animals. Um, and, I, and, and I had an idea on three areas that I thought would be worth investigating more if I, if I really wanted to make an impact. And those were really high level, but they were um, education. So, so educating people on what the, the problem was, finding unique ways to do that. The second was a spay and neutering. Um, and maybe we can get more into that later. And, and then the third one was rescue transportation, um, which is eventually what, it, what I ended up pursuing. So anyways, I, I decided when I finished school, I wasn't going to jump right into a career and I'd take a little bit of time and I'd try a bunch of different things that I was uh, passionate about and that I was actually interested in uh, to try to see if, I don't know, just figure out what, what I was going to do. Because I knew that the, the trajectory I was on well, was going to lead me down a path where I would not be very uh, happy or fulfilled. So I wanted to, for the first time in my life, kind of try doing things I cared about. Um, and I had I'd always loved dogs. I have two rescue dogs myself. I volunteered in shelters in high school. Um, and so in that summer after graduating school, I, I began volunteering in a couple networks of uh, relay rescue animal transporters. And uh, essentially what we were doing was bringing pets from high kill shelters in Montreal to different rescues in Ontario. And so um, I was doing a lot of that. I, re I really liked it. Uh, I was inspired by how effective it was at taking pets in immediate need of danger and kind of opening up this world of possibilities for them. Because, yeah, it might be true at any particular time, a dog might not have a home in Montreal, um, but there's an entire world out there for that pet. And if you can kind of open up that applicant pool, there's a better chance that that dog can get adopted into a loving home. Now, I was doing all of that, and, and I really liked it. Um, but it's an extremely expensive way to volunteer. You're using uh, your own car. I was using my mom's car. I didn't have one. Uh, and you're filling up the gas tank with your own money. And you're, you're volunteering to drive these pets um, in excess of 100 kilometers at a time. And most of the time, it'd be 200-kilometer trips because you'd go there and, and back um, on, on your leg of the, the relay chain. And so I, I realized that what I was doing was great, but it wasn't sustainable and there needed to be a better way. And I think that problem um, equipped, or that problem in addition to the um, inspiration I found through social enterprises and, and reading uh, Blake Mikowski's book kind of led me to the idea of Team Clover, which was creating uh, dog collars and dog leashes that would give back in the form of rescue transportation. So for every, uh, the idea was for every collar sold, uh, I'd commit to transporting a pet in need on one leg of their journey towards a better life. And along with the purchase, uh, people would get a short video showing the exact pet that they helped. So that's what the Pet Supplies with Purpose meant at the very beginning. It still means that for our collars and leashes, but we've also kind of expanded the product line to uh, tackle uh, spay and neuter as well. How does it incorporate spayed and neuter? Yeah, so there, there's different product uh, lines. So we, uh, in, in February, um, February was spay and neuter awareness month. Uh, and 
back in December, I had this idea for this kind of like funny little gag product that would help raise awareness and funds for spay and neuter. And that was the, the Team Clover only balls. So they were a set of two tennis balls for which 100% of the profits go to go towards spay and neuter initiatives. And the whole punchline was the only balls your pet needs are the ones they fetch. So <laughs> that, that was the additional product line uh, that we launched for spay and neuter. And if you think about like why spay and neuter and, and, and why transport, you kind of have to really think about uh, what the landscape is for, for shelter pets. Uh, there, there isn't really a consensus on the exact number. Um, you see different figures from, from, I guess, different sources. But as an example, the ASPCA says that uh, in, in just America, 1.5 million companion animals are killed in shelters every single year, right? That's, that's a huge number. Um, it's a big problem, but it's not uniform at all. So according to Best Friends Animal Society, 50% of those shelter euthanasias happen in just five states. So what does that mean? You have pockets across North America where there's tons of overpopulation. And as a result, pets are being put down. And why um, transport is so effective is because it allows you to take pets from where they're overpopulated and where there's a lack of demand for them and bring them to areas where there's more of a demand for them and there isn't overpopulation. So you're able to not only rescue those pets, but rescue those pets without disrupting another ecosystem, right? You're not taking pets from overpopulation and bringing them to overpopulation. You're taking them to a place where there's a demand for them. And when you say a demand, you mean there's a, a household that is hoping to adopt this, this animal, not just space in another shelter. Yeah. And uh, well, oftentimes they get brought to rescues, uh, which are, they'll, they'll keep the dogs in foster homes. So it's people like you and me who keep the dog in our home and care for them temporarily until they find them a forever home. And that's just because you need a buffer uh, because of the timeliness of, of these things. The dogs will be on the euthanasia list to be killed, let's say next Monday. You got to get them out before next Monday or they'll be put down regardless of if you have a home. So you get them out you put them in a foster home and then hopefully relatively soon you find them a home and you place them there. But taking them, for example, from um, California, the state with the second most shelter euthanasias in all of America, and then moving to them to a home in California isn't as effective as moving them to Oregon, where euthanasia rates are so much lower than they are in California. And they're, and they're more likely to be uh, adopted after. It's one thing to do this as a nice person who likes animals yeah. and to do this, you know, after you've graduated for a little while. But when you noticed that it wasn't financially viable the way it was yeah. uh, to continue to pay out of pocket and to, and to do it yourself, instead of giving up on this, instead you turned around and you created a business around this. Well, there, there were a couple things. One, it, it's something that I'm very passionate about and I don't think that it would have been possible that I could have ever turned my back on it. So I always would have done something, whether it be full-time or part-time, in the space of uh, companion animal welfare. Now, uh, in terms of uh, starting a business, I think that kind of is a result of, of my background. So I, I don't have a tremendous amount of entrepreneurial experience, but earlier on in school, I, I did have a business that I started with some friends. We created uh, backpacks with a built-in power supply so that you could kind of keep your phone charged uh, on the go. And so I, I did have that knowledge. And it, it's kind of uh, like that saying, um, 
the carpenter always sees the solution with a hammer and a nail. You kind of, when you're trying to solve a problem, you see it through the lens of your own experience. And I understood product development and I knew uh, colors would be relatively easy to figure out um, how to make. And it, it just made sense. And to be honest, when, when I started Team Plover, I had no idea what Team Plover would become. In fact, when I started selling Team Plover collars, I was still losing money uh, selling the collars. I was just losing less money than I was by paying everything out of pocket. So I didn't have, uh, like, there was no business model or anything like that. It was my very first experience selling the collars was going to a local market in Toronto, Evergreen Brickworks, setting up a table and putting two pieces of fabric on the table. Um, I made up a price for the callers that day, not really thinking a ton about it. And I told people, hey, um, this is my idea. If you're interested, you can pre-order one. In three weeks, I'll send you the uh, caller. And in 30 days, I'll send you the video, a video of the dog you helped. And then I figured out how to make a caller. What was the response to that, to, to, to sitting there at a table with a couple pieces of fabric? <laughs> it was better than I, I thought. I definitely walked away from it happy. I, I sold four pre-orders, which was more than I thought uh, I would, considering the fact that I had nothing but fabric on the table right. uh, and a story. Um, but yeah, um, people were willing to take the chance on 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 me and they, it really resonated with them. So a, a lot of things have changed since then. Like at that time, I never specified how far a leg of transport was because I didn't really even know. Like I would just, when I was volunteering, I was doing relay transport um, and you would just drive basically your leg of the chain, however long it happened to be in between drivers. So I would I would just do that. There was no structure to it. And then over time, as I started to realize that Team Plover could be a viable solution, I started looking at, okay, how do, how do I make these, uh, the cost of the product and the cost of the transport work so that we can achieve some sort of scale? Because what I was doing at the time, I couldn't scale because I was still losing money selling the callers. Um, and, and eventually I was able to, to find a model that works. And, and other things have changed as well. In the beginning, I said, uh, I'll give you a video in 30 days. I realized that that's very difficult to do at scale. So now it's, it's 60 days because the way things are right now, when you buy a caller, we haven't already done a transport. We, we literally take a portion of that money and we fund an animal's transport and then get a video. So we have to sell the caller then do the transport, then get a video edited and send it to you. And 30 days just didn't work as we started to kind of grow. And, I, and I, I say we a lot. In the beginning, it was just literally just me. So I was doing all of the making. I was doing all of the selling. I was doing all of the driving. I was doing all of the everything. Um, and, and now th there are more people involved. But Well, so tell me a little bit about that. How did you know how to make a collar? I mean, I got to ask that. What do you mean? You were, yeah. you, you were making collars by yourself in the beginning? Is it hard to make a collar? No, it's, you know, I did it. No, if you know how to sew, but I didn't know how to sew. My grandmother um, was a, a seamstress. Uh, she had actually uh, passed away just before I had graduated university and she had an industrial sewing machine in her basement. So um, at the time in the, in the fall of 2018, when I, when I tested the idea, uh, after kind of going to this event, I, I went to my grandparents' basement uh, and I played around with trying to figure out how to make a collar. And three weeks to make a collar, I figured it out. Looking back at the collars I made then versus the collars we make now, a lot of things have changed and they definitely weren't the greatest. And I, I've learned a lot about uh, materials and also making uh, 
products. But yeah, it was, it was just trial and error. Like we live in a time where there's so much information out there online, but also meeting different people. I don't remember exactly when it happened. I think it was the beginning of 2019. I started realizing that, okay, um, for, for me to be able to grow this, I'm going to need to be more hands-off in terms of the production and get some help. So I went to a fabric store uh, on Spadina in the, in the fashion district of Toronto. And I asked the, the guy who owns the shop, hey, do you know anyone who can help me make these collars? Um, I, 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 I need some help. And he said, yeah, I know a guy. He's coming to the shop in 15 minutes by, by some coincidence. And so I, I hung around for 15 minutes. He came by. I told him what I, uh, what I wanted to do. And uh, he, he, he loved it and he was willing to help. And so he was, I guess could say team plovers employee number one although there wasn't any contract or anything like that um but yeah and and i learned a lot about uh sewing from him like he he really helped me figure out all the things that i was doing wrong and so he just really loved the idea i i guess he must have been a dog guy as well no you know what not at all but he he's uh he was a very compassionate guy uh, he he's an older gentleman who had immigrated to canada not too long ago he had lost his leg back in india in in an accident at the the loading dock so he's he's experienced his fair share of a struggle and i i think he he, he just like through that and getting through everything he's been through just led him to be a, a very kind human being who wasn't jaded by the things that had happened to him so i i just told him about what i was doing and he liked it and he was willing to to help me out and i would pay him to to make the callers and yeah and, and he, he loved to teach he, he was a uh, uh tailor so th- this is what he did for a living so it was, it was kind of a right he wasn't a hobbyist he was a pro yeah yeah so what does team plover look like nowadays what's the setup there's there's a couple ways i could go about answering that but in terms of like the the actual team technically i'm the only full-time employee but i work with a lot of people so i have currently three artisans who will help make the products i'm still very involved in in the development of the products but i have help from from three uh, artisans who help to uh, create products i have this woman who i work with who runs our social media our instagram account and then the transport partners uh in the states who do the transports but none of them are are technically employees of Team Plover. They're all uh, contractors or partners of, of Team Plover. Uh, in terms of how we sell our products, where we sell our products, the majority of it happens at events. So like the, the one-of-a-kind craft show in Toronto or various craft shows, pet expos, uh, things like that. That's where we do a significant portion of our volume. Why is that such a good place for you? Well, I think it's a couple things. It, I think it's the best place for me because I don't know anything about digital marketing and haven't been able to figure out how to make that work. But I think the, the other piece is I have a lot of passion for Team Plover and what we do. And when I'm at these events, meeting people face to face, telling them about what Team Plover does and why we do it, I feel like it really resonates with people in a way that would be tough to do online or if the products were on a shelf in a store. So I, th- I think it's because uh, people get to kind of hear the story from me and, and um, like my story and background as well. Right. It makes sense. I mean, a lot of folks have products that are fairly self-explanatory and 
to be fair, in your case, it's pretty self-explanatory what a collar and what a leash does. But the purpose behind it is really where the innovation is. And it can be difficult for people to put that story together themselves just from reading a website. 100%. Like It's extremely difficult, especially because what we do isn't really intuitive. So if you were to talk to the average person about rescue transport, they probably have never heard of rescue transport or realized that it happened behind the scenes or really cared about it, um, which makes things difficult. And I, I think the thing to keep in mind is when I started Team Plover, I didn't start Team Plover trying to come up with the social cause that was, I don't know, most sellable to people. I, I chose a social cause that I felt was most impactful and meant the most to to me. But I, I think there is a way to communicate what we do effectively. It, it's just difficult and it'll, it'll take time just tweaking it in, in different channels. And, and that's the thing, like selling a Team Plover product in retail will be very different than selling it through e-commerce, which will also be very dif- different than selling it face-to-face. So it's, it's trying to figure out how best to navigate all of those channels. So other than face-to-face, what's been your most successful not-in-person sales method? Second would be uh, e-commerce. Uh, in, in terms of retail, it's, it's not something we do right now at all. Uh, although it's something that I'm starting to investigate. The real the, the reason we haven't done it in the past is because we, we just couldn't afford to. So as some of your listeners might know, if, if they come from a business background, retail's a completely different beast and the margins are a lot thinner because the retailer needs to make a margin and then you need to make a margin. And with, with everything that we do, having our products handmade in Canada and doing all the rescue transport and all of that stuff, there just wasn't enough money to go around to do retail in the past. Um, but I'm starting to investigate now if that is uh, a possibility because um, although it would be difficult to do right now, I know that with added volume, our costs of actually making the product will go down. We'll benefit from economies of scale through uh, purchasing materials in, in bulk. And I'm, I'm looking into whether or not it's it's worth pursuing retail to increase our, our volumes, decrease our costs, and then make that a, a viable sales channel. So it's it's something I'm investigating, but it's it's tough. That's that's the challenge of running a social enterprise. The, the margins aren't uh, as great as they are in, in most other businesses. Why is it handmade? Why in Canada? There must be cheaper ways, faster ways to make stuff. Why have you chosen to go this route? That's it's a really good point, and that's um, pushback that I've gotten uh, a lot from various mentors or, or people who have uh, given me advice regarding Team Plover from a business perspective. But I guess it, what it boils down to is wanting to look back at Team Plover and be proud about everything that we did, and and what that looks like is being proud about the impact we made, but also proud about how our products were ethically created. Now, are there cheaper ways to create a product ethically, potentially? And I'm, I'm not saying that it will always be handmade in, in someone's home. Uh, like things will change for sure. But it's just it's important to me that Team Plover tries as, as hard as we can to do good as opposed to net good. And what I mean by net good is there's some good. Uh, but there's also some bad, but the good outweighs the bad. And okay, we're doing good. I want to try to be as as truly good as as we can. And that makes things complicated. And and I'm sure that there will be small ways I'll have to make some compromises. 
but in, in no chance am I going to uh, make a compromise in, in making the products unethically uh, or, or compromising our mission for uh, creating a world where every pet has a loving home. I mean, it's a hell of a mission, and it's an interesting way to fund this mission. Most people, I make something, I sell something, I get the money. In your case, it's I make something, I sell something, I spend the money to make someone else's life better, whether that's an animal or the new owner or however. It's a fascinating usage of the money. It's a, it's a little bit Robin Hood, really. Yeah, yeah I guess. In the, in the, I've never thought about it like that, but it's funny. <laughs> You say it. it. It is a little bit Robin Hood, but no one's getting stolen from. Right. <laughs> it's a Robin Hood where everyone consents. Yeah. So what does a typical day look like for you? <laughs> There's no typical days, but uh, like, everything always changes so fast. A, a typical day, I, 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 I wake up, uh, you know, shower, get ready, and then uh, I'll start probably on my computer just, just going through uh, emails. A lot of the times, uh, putting out fires. But then, you know, and, and this might not be uh, directly answering your question, but something that I've been thinking a lot about is how to effectively use my time. I feel like this the struggle uh, I've come across and, and the pitfall I've been stuck in oftentimes is, is working too much in my business as opposed to on my business. So I find a lot of the times I'm doing things that need to be done just to keep things at the status quo but not things to take us to the next level. So where I'm trying to focus a lot more of my time is doing the high value things that will uh, help take Team Plover to the next levels. And, and it, it's tough because it involves trying a lot of things, um, but also failing a lot. That's where a lot of the, the failures come, like trying different things that could lead to incremental step change in, in Team Plover's progress. And th that's hard to come by. So th there is a lot of failure um, and a lot of discomfort. Well, you and I spoke about discomfort. You, you had said that that is really actually the thing that you're searching out. Yeah, yeah. I, I found that in, in my personal life, when I'm faced with a problem that I'm really working hard to solve and I'm not solving it, I'm, I feel like I'm not getting anywhere with it. The reason is because I'm trying all the solutions that are comfortable and I'm ignoring all the uncomfortable things. And, and I'm the type of person that believes that every problem has some sort of solution. And given that, if every problem has a solution and I've only tried the comfortable things and haven't gotten anywhere, the solution must be inside the domain of discomfort. So I, I try to be conscious of the fact that human nature will push me towards the comfortable solutions, but a lot of the times I got to kind of step back and, and start looking at doing some of the things that I find uncomfortable. And that, that takes many different forms. Uh, it could be cold calling uh, different organizations to form partnerships. I hate cold calling people and I'm sure I'm not uh, alone, but it's something I have to do a lot. But it also could be um, other things. We were uh, taking part in this grant competition and in order to qualify for the next round, we needed votes and so obviously I reached out to everyone I knew and my customers uh, but I wasn't confident that that would be enough because we joined the contest late so I started uh, and this was extremely uncomfortable to do but I started going to dog parks in my area and talking to strangers and asking them to go on their phone and vote for me and Team Plover even though they've never heard of me or Team Plover and a lot of them did it surprisingly um, I, I feel like it, too often we are, are faced with a tough problem and if we don't find a solution in the 
realm of comfortable things, we assume there's no solution. And, and a lot of the times it just takes doing some of the things that we really don't want to do. So ultimately, where do you want to take Team Plover? What do you want this to look like two years, five years down the road? Where I want to take Team Plover, I imagine Team Plover will have pivots. My, my first goal is to make Team Plover's uh, current product offering obsolete. I want to cr- help create a world where there's no need for, for rescue transport. To even think of rescue transport would be silly because we're, we're at a point where pets aren't being killed in shelters and every pet has a loving home. So that's that's the, the first goal. Now from there, I've, I've thought a lot about, okay, if I get to that point, will I shut down Team Plover or will I leverage uh, the following that we potentially would already have at that point to do something else that's meaningful. And I think that's probably the, the route that uh, I would take. Now, what that other thing is um, still has to do with, with pets, but that's about all I can say for now because it might be something that we launch relatively uh, relatively soon to start working on another mission about um, the welfare of, of companion animals. So where can people find out more about you? They can find us at teamplover.com, teamplover.ca, social media at teamplover. That's Facebook and Instagram, YouTube as well. If you follow us on social media and you're from the Toronto area, at the very least, you'll see what events we are attending and you can potentially meet myself and some of the other people I work with uh, in person. Well, thanks so much for being on the show and sharing with us how you make a living. Thank you for having me. Subscribe to Making a Living Show at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. Follow along at Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you like what you hear, please share the show with someone you know. Making a Living Show is produced by Next Exit Media and hosted by me, Roby Levy. Thanks for listening.